Hello, and welcome to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. My name's Charlotte, I'm Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. So this month, you'll notice something different if you're a regular listener. I've been feeling a little under the weather, so our usually behind-the-scenes producer of the pod, Justin, has taken the reins. Justin chatted to Helen this month as part of our Left to Watch, Wait, Worry campaign. 60% of patients with chronic lymphocytic leukaemia don't need immediate treatment for their cancer. This is a positive in that they are not yet unwell enough physically for treatment, but our research shows that many struggle with this counterintuitive concept emotionally and do not have the support they need. Helen told Justin about how she coped when she was placed on watch and wait at her diagnosis. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Helen, who was diagnosed in 2015 and was on watch and wait for two years. Helen, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. No, no, no. It's great to speak to you today. Um, And it's really great to hear from you and to be able to speak to you today about your experience of watch and wait and the the reality of what it was actually like to live on that period. But before watch and wait ever occurred for you came that diagnosis. So what were the events that led up to your CLL diagnosis? Well, I think initially it was my dentist that said I might have a bit of a problem or made me aware that I might have a problem. I'd had a problem with a tooth on and off for a couple of years couldn't quite work out which tooth it was. It wasn't clear on x-rays, kept getting an infection, more antibiotics on and off. So it was a bit bit confusing, just thought it was a tooth. Eventually I decided I needed to have, dentist decided I needed to have the tooth taken out. And he said to me, he said, you'll probably realise now you've got a big lump underneath your neck, which is probably caused from you know, infection from your teeth. So he said, it'll go down in three to six months. Don't worry about it. So he said, if it hasn't gone down by then, go to your GP. Went on holiday in uh, August 2014. And I thought, "Mm, I think I look a bit paler than normal, not quite my normal colour. I then cleared up my tooth problem. So I decided I'd go back to giving blood, which is something that I've always done. Oh, I always did. I don't do it now, obviously. And for the first time ever, my hemoglobin levels levels were low. So they said, hmm, that's unusual for you. Then I remembered about the lump under my neck and thought, oh, no, that's still there. Maybe I need to go to the GP. Went to the GP. She said, I think you need to get that scanned. That didn't happen very quickly. and I had to keep reminding the GP. Eventually got an appointment probably about three months later had it scanned and that actually said I'd got more than one enlarged lymph node. I'd got several on both sides of my neck and advised a biopsy. I then had to chase the biopsy, but eventually got the biopsy done, went to see the neck surgeon who was going to do it. And he asked me lots of questions about any other lumps. And I said, I didn't think I had any, but he examined me and found lumps lymph nodes under my arms and in my groin so he sent me for a blood test and that was the first blood test I'd been sent for and when that came back he said right we need to do this quite quickly because something's not quite right and I got the biopsy done within a week and then probably about a week later was was given the results so probably quite an unusual way of being diagnosed with CLL because I think a majority of people are diagnosed with it by a routine blood test. 
No, that's exactly right. Predominantly, CLL is diagnosed asymptomatically. It's kind of a, an incidental thing that kind of happens to be diagnosed at the same time. Such a symptomatic story as yours is quite unusual. Yeah. And it sounds like as well, one of the major symptoms for you in those early days was this repeated infections, which from our perspective is one of the kind of the classic symptoms. Were you experiencing kind of any of the others at the time? Or was that the kind of the standout one for you at that time? Yes, it was. Yeah. I think, I think on reflection, um, when I look back, I probably was struggling to recover from coughs and colds and... I'd had chest a chest infection for a couple of winters and I'd never really suffered with that at all. I'd always had a really quite good immune system. I worked in a secondary school. I was a teacher. So I was forever coming in contact with lots of kids who got, you know, coughs and colds and diseases and all sorts of things. Um, so um, I think I'd built up prior to this a pretty strong immune system. But on reflection, when I look back, I was struggling to get rid of in infections, chest infections, coughs, you know, colds didn't clear up as quickly. So I think there were other signs, but they, they weren't signs that I just thought they were down to being getting older, you know, and being, you know, postmenopausal. So didn't really think about it. No, I think that's a really common kind of response to these, with the symptoms being so vague and not kind of easy to tie together, really, in a, in a lot of ways. No. Not quite easy to kind of put those pieces together. So I think in the vast majority of patient stories, there's always a symptom that's kind of written off as yeah. stress or age. Or, Absolutely. So I think that's, that is an extremely, extremely common occurrence kind of in, in most patients kind of journeys to getting diagnosed. I think as well on reflection, I was probably more tired at work, although fatigue hasn't been a particular problem for me, but days were long and busy, you know, when I was teaching and I would come home sometimes, cook the dinner and just fall fast asleep. But again, you just put that down to age, you know, you're not the same as you were when you were in your twenties and teaching. So again, you just... But I think I did notice my colour. I did think that I was a lot paler than normal. And that that was probably the thing that made me made me think. My grandmother had had leukaemia, but my mum had died by then. So I didn't know specifically what sort of leukaemia. So when all the things started to come together, I started to think in my head, could it could it be that? But you don't self-diagnose, do you? And nobody sent me for a blood test, so. And obviously, kind of with that personal link, what was your what was your prior knowledge to leukemia, to chronic leukemia, to CLL, kind of before your diagnosis? Kind of what did you know? I really just knew that leukemia was a blood cancer. So I knew that the word leukemia meant blood cancer, and I knew that for my grandma that meant lots of blood transfusions. Um, because she died when I was two, so in 1961. So that was a long time ago. So, you know, treatment then, you know, I, I just heard about her treatment from what my mum had, had said and her experiences. And I knew that she was, from what my mum had said, was, was tired. I don't think I even really understood the difference between an acute leukaemia and a chronic leukaemia. So when you've always been quite fit and healthy and haven't had anything wrong with you, 
you listen to people's stories about their illnesses and you take bits of information on board but and you empathize with them but until it actually happens to you you know it's um it's it's different when it applies when it applies to you what are you planning to achieve this year does it include free falling from 15,000 feet maybe flying on a zip wire is more your thing join team lc this year raising vital funds as well as your pulse rate We'll support you all the way in raising the money. The question is, are you brave enough to take on the challenge? Simply search online for Leukemia Care Zipwire or Leukemia Care Skydive to find out more. And it sounded like one of the earlier symptoms that got flagged, especially for kind of from the medical side of things, were these lymph nodes that mm. they started spotting. Yeah. And how serious were they taking those at that point? Well, the doctor didn't seem to take them very seriously at all. So I wasn't that worried about it. You know, the fact that I wasn't having a scan done very quickly and I had to keep chasing it meant to me that the doctor wasn't that worried about it. When I actually saw the next surgeon, I realised then that, ooh, these weren't quite right. And he was, he was really honest. He said, your bloods don't indicate at this time that you've got an infection. So your lymph nodes are swollen for another reason. And I said to him, could that be cancer? And he said, very likely. So even before I'd had it biopsied, I then had a, whoa, okay, that was a bit of a wake-up call. And I'd sort of, I suppose I thought, really, I was possibly making a fuss about nothing. You know, I didn't feel particularly ill, but... And as is often the case, you didn't look particularly ill, apart from being like a, a tad paler. No, so... absolutely. No, that's quite often the case. And it sounded like, in terms of the pace of your diet, things moved quite slowly for a while. And then it sounded like things accelerated quite quickly towards the end. I felt as if the surgeon who did my biopsy, he was really good because he couldn't put me in to have the biopsy done under a general anaesthetic. He hadn't got a, a big enough time slot or an anaesthetist. So he did it under a local anaesthetic because he wanted to do it quickly. I mean, I was willing to do that and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a painful procedure. He was really good. And after it, he was really on the ball in terms of, right, I want you to come back to me in a week and in a week I want you to bring somebody with you, which is always also a bit of a flag that news isn't going to be good. And then he couldn't meet me where he wanted to meet me. Um, he'd had an emergency at the hospital. So he phoned me and said, no, I, I'd still need to see you but we've got to go to a different hospital. So I went with my husband and he told me that I had a cancer, but he didn't know what sort of cancer it was. There was a nurse in with me and he was really busy on that day because he got an emergency to deal with. So he left me with the nurse and my husband. He basically said, I don't know what sort it is, but you'll probably need to have chemotherapy and possibly radiotherapy. And he said, I'll pass you on to the specialist who will be able to support you and further explain your diagnosis. So we sort of left the hospital with a diagnosis of what I thought probably could be neck cancer. I don't know. Possibly thinking, you know, needed chemo and radiotherapy. Yeah. And then I was surprised when the letter from the hospital came through and it was from a haematologist. So then I thought, right, okay, this must be blood cancer and went to the hospital, which was probably about 10 days after I'd been told that I had the diagnosis, went to the hospital 
and was given the diagnosis by a haematology consultant who told me that I had chronic lymphocytic leukemia and if she was going to choose a cancer, this is the cancer she would choose. So I sort of, we were both taken aback by that. I think as well that the amount of time somebody spends giving you a diagnosis like that, she was really quite, quite sharp. She said, you know, looking at your bloods, she then said, explained the watch and wait to me, sort of. She says, you know, this is the best sort of cancer. It probably may never need treatment. We just need to watch it and wait and see what happens. And you need to come back and have your bloods taken every three months and we'll see what happens to your bloods every three months and then decide each time you come in whether we need to do anything or whether it's stable. But all you need to do now is to go away and come back again in three months' time. What a bombshell, though, that was. We sort of walked out of the ward, my husband and I, Cliff and I, and we just sort of looked at each other. And he said, well, I think that's good, isn't it? And he said, I said, well, I think it's good too, but how many people have cancer and they tell you to just go away and watch it and wait and see what happens? I mean... You know, if you've got cancer, you usually need timely treatment, don't you? And the quicker it's caught, the sooner it's sorted. But Very true. And I think a lot of patients kind of can sometimes struggle to kind of wrap their heads around the concept of watch and way. And some of the, the terminology she used in that in the initial appointment then, and this, this idea that this was a good cancer and that this was one that she would want. How were you feeling hearing those words? That's a... That's an unusual thing to kind of hear in that appointment, I imagine. I was quite happy to give it to her. She could have had it if she wanted it that badly, but it doesn't quite work like that, does it? I think at the time, I just couldn't believe she was saying it. And when I look back, it's one of those things on my journey that just sticks in my mind. And I think I sincerely hope that other doctors aren't using those same words to explain to somebody that they've got a chronic illness. At that time, I didn't really understand the fact that it was, it could be treated, but probably wasn't, you couldn't cure it. I was just told to go away. I was given a booklet to go away and read, and that was helpful. And I was also told that there was a clinical nurse specialist who was available. And if I had any questions, I could come back and talk to her. But I needed to do that very quickly because she was retiring and they probably weren't going to replace her. Ouch. Okay, that is... So just a long line of bombshells then, it sounds like that day kind of ended up being... Yeah, here's a bit of support, somebody that you could come and talk to, but do it quickly because she's going to retire. Make it quick. Yeah, I did do it quickly and I did go back and she was, she was very good. No, that's great to hear. Just jumping in, in terms of in terms of how they explained watch and wait to you, which you touched on as it can sometimes seem a bit kind of counterintuitive in a lot of ways. Like, how did they try and explain watch and wait to you? And kind of how did you come to terms with that as this option for you? I don't think they explained it well at all, to be honest. They just said, we just watch and see what happens. And by doing that, we 
we do regular blood tests every three months, and that's what watch and wait is. And if we see that there's a deterioration, then uh, we have to consider what sort of treatment would be appropriate. But at that first point, that was all that was explained. When I went back to see the, the specialist nurse, she said that, that, that CLL was one of the cancers where watch and wait was what most patients did. And she, she explained really that for a majority of patients, watch and wait is quite a positive thing because really in a lot of patients, the leukemia never really needs to, to be treated. You die with it rather than from it, is what was explained. So when I started to get my head around that, I realized that probably watch and wait wasn't such a bad option, but I couldn't quite understand how I was going to explain watch and wait to other people. Um, and even coming back from that meeting and explaining it to Cliff, my husband, it was sort of, you know, it doesn't feel quite right. It doesn't sit comfortably. It just doesn't. The watch and wait sounds like a passive statement. You know, it sounds as if you're not going to do anything and you don't really care. So I think the actual words aren't a good choice. I think active monitoring is far more positive because it makes you feel like you're doing something, whereas watching wait almost makes you think you're waiting for something to bad to happen and you can't do anything until that bad thing has happened. No, that's very, that's very, very true. And um, there are a lot of patients who feel the same way about the, the terminology and the, and the naming when it comes to watch and wait and active monitoring. And a lot of patients do prefer active monitoring. You're right. Uh, you touched on very pertinently that when you got to grips and were kind of informed about watching weight, you, you, you yourself came to terms with that. But it's, it's that process of getting to grips with it and getting informed about the reality of what that is. That can be a really uncertain and nervous time for patients. Uh, at that point, I did um, have a watch and weight booklet. Mm. From, I, I'm pretty sure it was from Leukemia Care. And that helped me to understand watch and wait a bit more and to see it in a more positive light in terms of the, the CLL journey that I was on. I think it took me a long time to really come to terms with it. It was okay to be on watch and wait. And I wasn't able to talk to anybody other than my husband, Cliff, about it until I came to terms with it myself. I felt that I needed to be comfortable with my diagnosis and comfortable with understanding watch and wait before I could tell um, my two sons, Andy and Matt. I didn't feel able to tell them until I felt confident with, with the diagnosis um, and that I was doing the right thing to be on watch and wait. You know, the first thing they said was, well, what are you going to do about it? I can't do anything about it. I've just got to leave it. No, I think you're totally right. I think, especially for members of the public whose knee-jerk reactions, oh, it's, it's cancer, so there must be chemotherapy, and they go hand-in-hand, hand for I think, for the general public, yes. whereas watch and wait can be quite a... doesn't quite add up. And you touched on the booklet that you received from Leukemia Care, and that's great to hear that you managed to 
get some support from that and some information. And yes, yes. that's quite a big cornerstone of the left to watch weight worry campaigns because it's shown that getting that information and getting those kind of booklets can be a real stepping stone into kind of reducing the the burden on patients and kind of the psychological impact of watch and wait and that period of coming to terms with it can be really helped with good quality timely information i think i used that booklet as a reminder that it was officially okay to watch and wait so the booklet was there and when i was feeling a bit wobbly about it i'd get the booklet out and read it and think no it says there in black and white it's okay you know, while your bloods are as they are, it's okay to watch and wait. So that was really reassuring. It was just reassuring to, to be able to keep going back to it. I think when I was first diagnosed, I didn't want to trawl the internet and find out lots of information. I didn't want to talk to anybody else with CLL, which surprised me because I think that would actually have helped. I wanted to keep it close to me and um, not share it with a lot of people. So really, I only shared it with, with Cliff and my two sons. And because I got to go for regular blood tests and hospital appointments, I shared it with a close friend and colleague at school and with the HR department. And the HR department were brilliant. They didn't understand watch and wait either. So I think I gave them the booklet to read for a while. No, that's great to hear that HR department was supportive and on your side. No, that's really great to hear. And the fact that you managed to pass on the booklet to them as well is always good to hear. What do you think you would have missed if you hadn't received that written information? What do you think you would have missed out on? I think I would have missed out on actually learning to accept that it was okay to watch and wait. I think people telling you verbally that watch and wait is okay. Didn't quite work for me at that time. I needed something a bit more substantial. I needed to be able to keep going back to something and reading it and understanding that watch and wait was fine for a majority of people with CLL and that for a majority of people with CLL, they wouldn't ever need treatment. And that was really reassuring, you know, to think, okay, I've got this chronic illness. It can't be cured but I can learn to live well with it. And when I actually realised I was living well with it, you know, I wasn't really ill, other than psychologically perhaps a bit scarred from the diagnosis, I wasn't really any different to how I'd been before I'd been diagnosed, other than being a bit paler. (laughs) And, And obviously lymph nodes. When I look back on photographs now, they did start they did start to get bigger but i didn't particularly notice it at the time but i do now sort of looking back at photographs yeah hindsight and all that i guess um and would you would you recommend leukemia cares watch and wait booklets then to other watch and wait patients definitely definitely would i think it is just very very reassuring and i think as well if i was going to do it again i mean I'm a buddy for leukemia care. So I have a buddy that I speak to probably about once a fortnight. I think I would probably want to think I would be brave enough to get myself a buddy because that actually, I think, would have really helped me. Although at the time, I didn't really want to 
talk to anybody else with CLL. I wanted to keep everybody at, at arm's length. In fact, the first time I spoke to anybody with CLL was when I came to Worcester for the training day for the buddies. And I found that really, really helpful. I spoke to a guy who was also a teacher and he said, you need to retire. <laughs> I said, I can't do that. And he, he explained, he said, yes, you can. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to at the time. but <laughs> Was that John by any chance? Yes, it was John. <laughs> was it John? Yeah. John? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, John's yeah. great. Yeah. That's great to hear. Don't worry, I want to I dig into the, your experience with the buddy scheme. I'll come back to that in just a little bit. I, I actually wanted to jump back to, while I remembered, you kind of talked about the brief time that you had with that CNS that was available to you, um, the one who was retiring slightly imminently. Yes, yes, yeah. What was that like, having that access to a CNS? Was it useful? Were they helpful? No, absolutely. I think CN, she was the first CNS, and I only saw her on two occasions because she did retire. And they did eventually manage to replace her at the hospital I was at with another CNS who was also brilliant. So I think everybody needs to have a clinical specialist nurse because they almost, um, they're the glue in the situation. They allow you to be able to ask questions that you can't get answered from the GP because my GP told me I probably knew more about CLL than she did. Um, and they also allow you access to your consultant if you are concerned. So, you know, it opens lots of ways of, of communicating. And when I was coming up to diagnosis and it was obvious that I did need treatment, she understood that I couldn't take a telephone conversation in the middle of a lesson. So because I was teaching... I used to phone her first thing in the morning and I'd leave a message and then I'd give her times when she could phone me at break time and lunchtime or after school when she could get back to me. And she did it always at the right time. I was never phoned in the middle of a lesson, um, um, which was really important to me because at the time I was managing a department and they didn't know that I was ill. So I needed to maintain my confidentiality at that point. And that CNS, well, the two CNSs you've had, has it, has it just been two then in total at this point? Um, no, because I, when I actually started treatment, I, I swapped hospital because I um, went on the trial. Sure. So, you know, the CNS nurse that I have at the moment is also really, she's my trial nurse. So, Well, it's great to hear that you managed to have that relationship and it was particularly positive one for you and you managed to get a lot out of that do you think that having that access to a cns is something that watch and wait patients more broadly need yes definitely i definitely need think you need access to somebody that you can speak to quickly um, and you can rely on to get back to you because the system you shouldn't necessarily have direct direct access to a consultant but you do need to be able to have open communication channels if you aren't feeling well or you are feeling as if perhaps you need another blood test done. So, yeah, definitely really do think that, you know, clinical nurse specialist is 
well, it should be essential, to be honest. That is exactly right. And no, we fully champion that as a, as something that needs to improve and change for patients on watch and wait and their their day-to-day experience and their access to information and support and care. And a CNS can play a big role in that and can be a quite an essential factor in the change for watch and wait. Absolutely. Totally. In terms of after that diagnosis then, I mean, given that about watch and wait and living on that period for, for two years as it was for you, how often were you getting seen, appointments, blood tests? How, how much was it? How much contact was there? I was seen every three months. So every three months I had an appointment and they made the appointment, the next appointment while I was there. So I always had an appointment in hand, as it were. I had a blood test prior to the appointment and then the blood test informed, you know, the discussion and the consultation. And obviously any other side effects I was feeling, was I feeling tired? Was I having night sweats? You know, all those sorts of things. So the consultant would obviously be looking at my bloods and would be looking at how I felt as a patient as well. So that was done. But I managed the watch and wait part of that in quite a visual way, which sounds a bit crazy when you look at it now. But once I got to terms with watch and wait, I used to take my illness with the watch and wait after each appointment and I'd put it in a box and it was a wooden box in my head with a padlock on it and I'd put it in that box and I would leave it there until the next time I needed to go have a blood test. And then I'd open the box, take it out, go with a piece of paper and then after each appointment, I would put it back in the box. So for me, watch and wait, went in a box, was left somewhere. So I didn't have to think about it because that's how I, I felt I could manage it. I am watching and waiting. I can't do anything now until the next appointment. So I put it to one side. No, that how I managed it compartmentalization is you're certainly not the first patient CLL patient I've spoken to has dealt with that I know that makes a lot of sense and in that early period obviously you've you've talked about that hospital support you've received from your CNS in terms of wider support from elsewhere were you accessing any charities did charities come to you in that period of watch and wait was there any support coming your direction I was given a leaflet about a support group that was in the area Um, but when I contacted it the support group wasn't there any longer so I really just at that point had the watch and wait booklet and an explanation of CNL CLL which I think in the first instance was um, a blood wise one but then when I had the watch and wait one I've got the leukemia care one so I just used those really as my right if anything changes if I get any of these symptoms, then I know perhaps my disease is progressing. So I just used those really to navigate my way around. Didn't really look on the internet an awful lot. Didn't really want to know any wider than where I was with CLL. I, I feel as if I wasn't prepared to share that with the world. That doesn't worry me at all now talking to anybody about it. So, um, But at that point, I didn't want to. I didn't actually tell my colleagues 
until I had to go for treatment. Wow. That was quite a, what, a few years down the line then, like two years later. Mm. I worked in a very supportive, caring department, and I was the manager of that department. And I thought that if my team knew about my diagnosis, I wouldn't be able to do my job because they would be watching out for me, trying to send me home if they thought I didn't look very well, Yeah, trying to keep me out of the way of kids, you know, if they came with coughs and sneezes. And you can't function like that in a school. You know, you have to manage kids when they come in and they're not very well. And I, I thought I just can't do my job. But when I eventually needed treatment... Um, I needed treatment quite quickly, so I had to sort of tell them, and they had no idea. Wow. And you touched on there how in those early years you weren't particularly open about sharing your experiences and you and you yourself quite closed off other people's experiences. You just want to see the booklets and that was about it. So obviously things have changed for you now, and clearly you're speaking to me now and you're sharing your story with us. Why have you decided to share your watch and wait story and why are you kind of telling it now? I think it's a really difficult, a really difficult thing to understand when you're first told about watch and wait. And I think if me telling my story can help somebody else to manage their journey through watch and wait better, then that can only be a positive thing. So I'm quite happy to share my journey of watch and wait and experience of watch and wait, if that can help other people. I do think that there are lots of things that could be done to improve watch and wait. And, you know, we have touched on some of them. You should have mental health support, whether that's from um, a clinical nurse specialist or, I don't know, a cancer charity or when you're given that diagnosis, because I think people really need to understand that being on watch and wait or active monitoring is okay. That's actually the really positive part of the journey, but it doesn't necessarily seem like that at the time. So I do think people need support with that. I think it needs to be watch and wait needs to be explained clearly in the first instance. You know, me having that booklet from Leukemia Care, which was something I had to find out for myself, if that had been given to me a diagnosis, then that would have been helpful. It would have helped me to be able to explain that to my children, to Andy and Matt, to my close friend at school who, was, who supported me really well and covered for me when she needed to, and to, you know, HR. You know, I did give them the book and it was was helpful for them so no that, that's great to hear and i know you've touched on really pertinent points as to what potential changes for watch and wait we've spoken a bit earlier about the terminology and how you preferred active monitoring as a as a less of a passive time and like and the mental health support that you talked about there as well which i thought was a really great great idea because no you're right it is there's a learning curve when it comes to watch and wait it's not a being told that treatment is potentially in the in the far future or not at all is 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 not what the public would come to expect when it came to with a cancer diagnosis at all mm. but obviously your period of watch and wait came to an end about two years 
after it began. So that would have been in 2017. Because now you're on continuous ibrutinib treatments. Yes, that's right. Yes. What's kind of been the impact of that? How was that that tipping point between watch and wait and treatment, that, that period of change? How did that go for you? I had three monthly blood tests. And when it got to the January of 2017, my consultant said that my hemoglobin levels were dipping and were never going back up again. And my neutrophil level was really quite low. In fact, I think he was very surprised at how few infections I'd had at my neutrophil level being as low as it was. I think it was quite consistently 0.8, so quite low. And he said it looked as if I was tipping towards needing treatment. My white blood cells, I have, I've got atypical CLL, so my white blood cells never really got to a really high level. So the tipping point really was my hemoglobin levels dropping and my neutrophil level falling. So he first introduced the idea that I might need treatment in January 2019. And then in February that year, I had uh, lymphadenitis, which was one of my lymph nodes in my groin, suddenly became very tender and grew very quickly because I had an infection. So I needed to be in hospital on antibiotics for about a week. I then got coughs and colds that I really couldn't shake off. So it was pretty obvious that my neutrophils, my immune system wasn't keeping track. I got out of the winter period and then felt a bit better. You're not coming in contact with as many coughs during the summer period. Then I had one blood test and my hemoglobin level had really just dropped off. So I had an emergency telephone conversation from my nurse who said that I really needed to go in and have a blood transfusion. And from there, yeah, I was, I, I was asked whether I wanted to, whether I would consider being on a trial. And that actually meant me leaving one hospital where I'd got a really good relationship with my clinical nurse and moving to another hospital and starting all over again. And it took me a little while to think about that. What were the pros and cons? What were you weighing up at that point? Um, I think my local hospital was where I'd been treated. And the hospital that was, would have done the trial wasn't an awful lot further. At that time, the hospital that was local to me had a general ward where I would have had chemotherapy. So it would have been in a ward with lots of other people with other specialisms. Whereas if I went to the trial hospital, then I would just have a haematology ward. So it would be just managing chemotherapy for haematology patients. And I felt that that slight specialism would be an advantage. I'd actually been with my consultant when the oncology department at the other hospital had had to phone him to ask for advice while he was actually in a consultation with me. And I thought that it would probably be better if the haematologist was on hand straight away. So, Yeah, that makes total sense. And um, as kind of being a part of this trial then, 
How's your experience been? Do you feel more supported? Do you have to like, go in more often? How exactly has it worked for you? For me, it has, it has been positive. I think yeah. you're given a trial nurse for a start. Um, you're given a telephone number that you can contact them at any time. Talking to other people who haven't been on trials versus being on a trial, I think you certainly are watched more carefully while you're on a trial. But then I haven't really got the experience of not being on a trial, but just sort of discussing with other people that I know who've got CLL who've been treated and haven't been on a trial. Um, they have to dot the I's and cross the T's when you're on a trial. So I felt I felt as if it's been been really positive. You know, I've had one or two one or two issues along the way with regard to um, blood pressure and they decided I needed to swap my medication very quickly and they sorted that with my GP within six hours, which wouldn't, I don't think, have happened had I not been on the trial. So I think the trial has been a very, a bit, very positive experience. My um, clinical nurse is always there at the consultation. She brings my records and she fills in a long script of whatever we discuss. So I feel as if my discussion with the consultant is well documented. That's really great to hear that you've had such a positive experience with the trial then. Mm. I think you've gained from it, which is great, great to hear. I found the webinars really interesting, again, because I think of the lack of information you're given during treatment. And if you are given information, often at the time, it just it's just in one ear, out the other. So at the time, I think I didn't really take in a lot of the information and my husband did. And so after treatment, I actually went back to your YouTube channel and watched a lot of your webinars. Most recently, there was one on acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which I found really useful. Leukemia Care's informational webinars are about the topics that matter to you, whether that be the current news in COVID, the latest developments in treatment and much more. You can hear from patients and healthcare professionals alike, providing insight on all things leukemia. Watching it live even lets you post questions directly to those panels. Find out when our next webinar is scheduled by heading on over to our social media or our website, or to watch those you've already missed, check out our YouTube channel. Bit of a pivot, something you touched on earlier was the buddy scheme, oh, yeah. which I'm really keen to talk to you about. I'm really, really am keen to hear about that from you. Um, what year did you join the buddy scheme in then? Well, I was the first tranche, so... It was probably 2018, but it was, I was the first, first batch of buddies. And how have you found it? Is there, have you gotten something out of it? Have you found a benefit from it? Tell me about your experiences with it. I have had a benefit out of it. I think it was really helpful to come along and do the training because I met lots of people who had got CLL, who I always thought I didn't actually want to meet and realised how different everybody's journey is and how treatments vary and how symptoms are different and you know how some people on watch and wait can actually be on watch and wait for a long time and be absolutely totally fine by the time I was a buddy I was actually on treatment and I just started treatment and it was quite reassuring to talk to other people who were on similar treatments to sort of get a bit of an idea of if my CLL journey at that point was following theirs, I'd had to 
going to hospital quite a few times after I'd had the rituximab. And that seemed to be quite normal for a lot of people. And once the rituximab finished, came out the other end, then that tailed off, which is something that had, which had happened to me as well. So, no, it's been positive. So you were the you were the buddy supporter of someone who was on watch and wait. Yes, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did they indicate, or did you manage to get the impression from them that they were getting something useful and helpful from talking to you? Oh, I think I think so. We um, we still chat probably now pro- about once a fortnight. Although initially we used to chat once a week. It's been a positive thing for me because I feel as if I'm being able to use my experience to support somebody else. And if I was talking to somebody with, as, as a buddy without the support of leukemia care, I wouldn't be able to do it because my buddy has had quite a few difficult times over the past, I think it's about three years we've been talking now, and I've needed to contact the nurses at leukemia care to say to them, please, can you phone this person? Because she perhaps wouldn't have wanted to have asked for their help. And then she's been reassured by a nurse and perhaps been able to make decisions that she wouldn't have made had she not had that support. That's fantastic to hear. That's really great to hear that your buddy and and yourself has managed to get something out of the scheme. And yes. I've never met I've never met my buddy, obviously. And she lives up north. Um, but I'd love to. And I know a lot about her family. And uh, yeah, it would be it would be good to it would be good to meet up. And when we chat, we usually chat for about an hour. So we do chat for a long while. Well, if if you do eventually meet up with her, please let us know. We'd love to hear that. Uh, that's yeah, we'll do. Yeah, yeah. Can I can I just say if I hadn't had leukemia care there to support me during the COVID period, I'd have gone absolutely crazy. I think there hasn't been enough information by the government, and I think leukemia care have done so much to support people like me, and I wouldn't have been able to negotiate the COVID disaster without leukemia care support. I've, I've listened to lots of um, I've been on Zoom calls and I've retrospectively gone back and, and listened to, you know, speakers and that's been helpful. It's, an, it's empowered me to be able to say to my GP, this is what I'm entitled to and I'm entitled to it now, not when you're ready to give it to me. No, that's, that's fantastic to hear. Do you, think, do you think the public and do you think the government have properly understood the reality for blood cancer patients over the last three years? No, definitely they haven't. No, we've just forgotten. You know, and, and even now, I mean, I feel quite hopeful with regard to COVID. I haven't had COVID. I've managed to keep away from it. And we've only managed to keep away from it by being really careful. Me, my son's a teacher as well. So, you know, during the peak times, and now he's one of those as well, we've avoided face-to-face. My close family always tests before they come and see me, and my close friends always do the same. So I am a bit more confident with testing now, but we don't go to places where it's crowded. You know, the case numbers are still really high, 
And my consultant says to me, you need to really avoid getting it if at all possible. So, you know, that's absolutely what I'm doing. But I wouldn't have been able to understand and feel hopeful about coming through it had I not had all the information coming from leukemia care with emails and podcasts and Zoom calls, conferences, and it's been really, 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 really helpful. So thank you very much, everybody. Yeah, because the government certainly don't get it, and they think we should be out there now just getting on with our lives. But And obviously, how many vaccines have you had at this point then, I'm guessing? It must be... I've had four. Yeah, mm. and do you know, has your body, like... Have, can you mount a response? Well, it, it's an interesting one because I was, I've been involved with the Birmingham University research. So I have been sending my blood off every, every time, two weeks after every vaccination. Um, and I know that prior to my third one, I had got antibodies. But when I discussed these with my consultant, the consultant said it's positive that you have, but we don't know how many you've got. So it's very difficult still to know exactly how your body would react to COVID. The positive thing about it is I haven't had a cold for three years. Silver linings and all that, I guess. Um, Helen, Mm. thank you so much for this morning. It's been been a genuine pleasure chatting to you this morning. No problem. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline on 080 88 010 444. See you next month.